0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So when I was reflecting on what to uh, speak about and to teach this evening... Um, for some of you who've been coming the last couple or few months, I've been doing stories, big stories. The, our theory and legend about what women want. <laughs> um, you missed that one, but it's, it's a great story. Um, and, a, and, a, and an ancient story from the Vedas about um, Nachiketa descent to the underworld, to the Lord of Death, and what one learns there. Um, And tonight I wanna do another story that's a very Buddhist story, and I'll talk about it a little bit more. And part of the reason for doing it, um, I've been involved in other ways um, uh, recently in the very divided time that we live with a lot of concern as most people that I know have. Um, last week Trudy and I went down to migrant shelters in, in Mexico on the other side of the border to both help someone who was doing teachings down there that were helpful to the staff and to the migrants who were there, a women's shelter and a men's shelter and so forth. And also been involved in a project, um, got 130 other Buddhist teachers to sign up, um, sign a letter that we sent out to all of our lists and communities to get people to help get out the vote. Not just that you all vote, I hope you're all going to vote, but to try to activate a community through um, Faith in Action, which is a non-partisan group of churches and synagogues and mosques and Buddhist temples and so forth, all just saying that um, it's a responsibility as a member of the society um, to, ta- to treasure and to try and go out and support people who might not otherwise do it. So all those kind of things. But what I thought about t- tonight, the story that I want to teach from, is actually a timeless story. Um, and it's not so much focused on the moment, and maybe next month I'll do a story about the bodhisattva and the action in the world in, in, in a way that's um, helpful. But this is a story that has a much bigger perspective. And I think we kind of need that sometimes to step out of the um, immediate dilemmas and conflicts and worries and, and hopes and so forth and have a bigger picture. And what's what's unusual that you hear about this story tonight is that I'm taking a Buddhist text, which I rarely do here, um, called the Mahapari Nibha, Nibbana Sutta. It's, the, it's a text that is the story of the last year of the Buddha's life. Um, and when you read it initially, it seems like a historical story of, okay, the Buddha went here and he said this and he did that and you're reading history. But it's not. It's actually, as much as anything, a myth. And I want to invite you as you listen to understand these kind of ancient teachings as symbolic and mythological as much as literal. Um, Because if you don't have the sense of the symbolic and the mythological, then you take whatever it is—the Vedas or the Buddhist texts or the Bible or the Quran—completely literally. Um, and Joseph Campbell, the great, um, you know, mythological historian and so forth, said it's complete confusion um, of of levels. For example, it says in the Bible that um, you know that a rich man. Um, is less likely to go to heaven than a camel pass through an eye of the needle, right? You've heard that. Turns out the eye of the needle is actually the name of a very small gate in the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. It's not about a needle at all. It had a very different origin, Um, but it also has a different meaning. It's not about needles or gates, obviously. It has some other meaning, just as Moses in the burning bush, if you read um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, um, Annie Dillard's remarkable natural world thing. She writes about the day that she saw the tree with the lights in it. And she said, I would walk on my knees across the desert for hundreds of miles to see that tree one more time. Um, And it doesn't mean that the bush was burning or that the tree was on fire. But what it means is that we have a capacity to see this world in an illuminated way, to see the magic of the bay trees and the oaks and the sunlight on them and the sparkling and to realize that every tree is life growing in new directions and putting itself out there, drinking in sunlight and being part of this fabric. And we don't see the mystery and the magic of it. So to understand these ancient stories not just as historical but we keep telling them because they resonate in a different way in the heart and mind um in a symbolic and a mythological way and i'll have a little quiz for you as we go along so you can see if this is of value to you so this is the 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 text on the Buddha's last teachings, the story of the last year of his life. And if you read it as history, it would be pretty boring. But it's actually part of one of the great myths of humankind, the Buddha's life. Um, And it starts, the way you know that it's mythological, it starts with the phrase something like once upon a time. Okay, you've heard that before. And it ends literally with a phrase that says, this is how it was in the old days. So it really feels like a fairy tale when you read it in some way. Um, And it has two uh, themes. One is a guidance to practice how the Buddha wanted to leave the community. Um, And so guidance for the monks and nuns and lay people. And the other is about wise relationship in spiritual community. And the whole underpinning is the empowerment of those who were around the Buddha or who were receiving the teachings. It's really a text about empowerment, and it takes place in the ancient forests of India when India was really forested, and there were many tigers. And um, you know, some of it takes place on Vultures Peak. This set of mountains in the Ganges Plain, some of it along the river Ganges, but in an India that's very different than modern India, an India that was covered with wildness. Um, and I know when I first went to India, oh gosh, 40 some years ago, I forget, I think the population was 400 million, 450 million. It's now 1.2 billion. Um, I It was crowded then. <laughs> I'm like, where do they put them now? You know? It's kind of remarkable how the human population has grown. Um, but it's also affected the landscape in a way. So you have to imagine that this was a, a verdant um, and wild landscape. And so here's the Buddha sitting in a grove in the forest. And his attendant comes to him, well, the very beginning of this, and says, um, I have the chief minister of one of the local kings coming by um, with an important question. And the question is, should we make war on the Vajjians? Um, They haven't behaved that well and we're thinking of making war and taking over their kingdom. Um, And um, the Buddha's response, which is a really compelling one in a certain way, he says to the chief minister of the king. Um, Do the Vajjans meet regularly in harmony? Do they treat one another with respect? Do they listen to one another um, with care? Do they meet in harmony and disperse in harmony? If they do, they can be expected to prosper and not decline. And then he goes on and say, do they follow the wisest traditions of the ancestors and elders? Um, And great teachers, if they do, they'll prosper and not decline. Do they take care of the vulnerable among them? The women, the children, those who are vulnerable in other ways, if they do, they will prosper and not decline. Do they take care of the natural environment and the sacredness of the nature around them? If they do, they will prosper and not decline. Now, I had a chance to more or less read that text at the first White House Buddhist leadership gathering a couple of years ago that we had with 120 Buddhist teachers. Not going to happen again soon. We know this, but (laughs) leaving that aside. um, But these are really the teachings of wise society. And then the Buddha goes on and he says to the community around, them, around him, if you listen to one another with respect, if you care for the sick and the vulnerable among yourselves in the community, if you um, treat the temples and the places that are your, your, your uh, dwelling places w- with respect and care, the environment around you, if you practice your own mindfulness, and then there's another really beautiful phrase where he says, if you preserve your personal mindfulness, and um, as long as the monks and nuns, both in public and in private, show loving kindness to those around them in acts of body, speech, and mind or heart, then you will prosper, not decline. So... The the minister bows to the Buddha and says, Thanks for the advice. The Vajans sound like their kingdom is pretty well together. I guess we shouldn't make war against them. And then the Buddha says, All right, that's the teachings for the for the wise society of the kingdom, but here now for you as a community. So here's the mythological question. Why didn't the Buddha just say, War is a bad thing, don't kill people? I mean, we'd like to say that, wouldn't we? But why didn't he say that? I can see your little brains are starting to percolate a little. And I'll give the answers to these questions. But I warn you, they might not be the right answer. Because you have to understand it in your own way. My understanding is that he didn't say, don't go to war to a king. Because what he was interested in teaching was something deeper which is the cause and effect of things. Not just the effects of things, but the causes. And if you have a just society and you have people treating each other well, then the fruits of that will be peace, will be strength in the community, um, and so the same for those who followed him. He didn't want to just say, oh, this is bad or this is good, but he said, look to, the, look to the way you live with one another, and that is what is actually going to create the world that you live in. You understand this? It's easy to say war is bad, but what are the conditions that make it happen? So then, the gist of the of the story as it goes on is his travels, the announcement of his death, the last disciples, and the last teachings, and what to keep in mind as um, as he gets ready to die, and what happens when you die, and stuff like that. So he's again traveling with a group of monastics, Um, and now they're at uh, Pavaraka's Mango Grove, and Sariputra, who is the wisest of his disciples, sits with him and says, there have never been a more enlightened and better teacher than you in this world. Never been someone, and Sariputra was a very wise and wonderful figure in this, but he says, you are the best. There's never been anybody as wise and wonderful as you. And the Buddha looks back and says, Sariputra, do you know all the Buddha's past and future? Do you know all the great teachers of the world? How can you make a statement like that? He kind of calls him out saying, okay, you're boasting, but what's really the truth of this? And Sariputra answers, he says, it is as if there's a great city um, and to protect the city from marauders and the kind of things that could harm the inhabitants, there's one gate and at this one gate, there is a guard who stands, um, who sees what's skillful and helpful um, to those who inhabit the city and what's dangerous. And seeing with great clarity and living in a completely present and mindful way, this guard allows what's useful to come in and what's not useful um, to um, stay out. And he said, this is the abode of mindfulness and compassion. The gate is the present moment. And if we can stay present, with what arises, with the people we're in contact with, with the tasks we have to do, with the care we have for the earth or the community around. If we tend the present moment, then all things get tended. And he said in this, this quality of presence and the freedom to be here and now fully is the abode of the awakened ones. So therefore I can say... There's never been a greater one because this is the place. And he gave some pretty good answer. And the Buddha said thus, just so, sorry, Putta. And he kind of allowed that um, the abode of the Buddha, the word Buddha means one who is awake. And rather than lost in thought and lost in the past and future and fear and confusion and so forth, reactivity, to actually be present with a liberated heart and mind. Then, um, well, here's the line from Rumi. What's the fuss we make when we will all go one by one through that same gate? Now he's talking about a different meaning of gate, but you also can hear the mythological resonance of it. That this is all we have. We have the present moment. That's that's one gate. But also we have the gate of death. And the fact is that our lives are limited. Um, what's the fuss when we will all go one by one through that same gate. So in this story um, the Buddha continues to wander with a company of friends, and then the question comes, what is the a wise relationship to the teachings? He comes to the banks of the Ganges River and he says to those who are with him, followers, um, I have offered to you teachings to cross the flood a boat, a raft. He said, these are teachings that allow you to come from the shore of confusion and delusion and fear um, and separateness and to cross the flood of suffering to a place of inner well-being no matter what the changing conditions are, to a freedom of heart, to a dwelling of liberation and compassion. And then he said, and friends, once you've crossed the river, would it be useful to you to carry the boat or the raft with you? It's a famous part of this kind of myth and metaphor. And of course, the monks and nuns and people around them, being intelligent, say, No, sir. And he says, Just so, my friends, use these teachings as a raft, as a boat, as a way to sh- move from the places of entanglement and fear and confusion to that shore of liberation. But don't be attached. Don't carry them either in some rigid way. Use the teachings to bring you to a place of freedom. And we know in history that there have been an awful lot of people who've taken spiritual teachings In we could go across many, many spiritual and religious traditions who don't know how to put the boat down you know, (laughs) and it's kind of heavy. And not only that, then you get into fights about it with other people and so forth. The Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning and takes this vow from Shantideva, may I be a boat, a bridge, a raft um, for all who need to cross the flood So he uses that metaphor. um, May I buy a lamp for those who are lost in the darkness. May I I offer myself as benefit to beings so that they might cross the flood of confusion and fear and come to a place of inner safety and well-being. So then they carry on. um, And uh, at this point, um, the Buddha goes to, to sit quietly in the forest um, under a great tree. And he has, as he's sitting quietly, Mara appears. Now Mara in Indian mythology is the name of a a god or a being who represents all the, um, all the causes of suffering. Sort of sometimes it's translated in these Victorian Uh, translations like the evil one, although he's not exactly evil. He's the force of ignorance and greed and fear and hatred and confusion embodied. And Mara, of course, um was the one who came mara came to the buddha when he was sitting under the tree of enlightenment before he became the buddha and tempted him with all you know the possible temptations and when the buddha didn't move then mara unleashed his armies of um anger and aversion and um hatred and um you know all the weapons of the armies of mara all the aggression and finally Doubt, what right do you have to sit here? And the Buddha reached down and touched the earth and said, the earth is my witness that I have uh, offered my whole life and many lifetimes out of compassion and care for the beings of this world, and I have a right to awaken, as, do ev- as does every human being. So that's sort of the, 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 the beginning of hearing about Mara in the Buddhist myths. So Mara reappears regularly for the Buddha. He doesn't just go away, which is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Even the Buddha has to deal with Mara periodically. You know, and not only that, Mara gets to Spirit Rock regularly and even to your own, you know, community. And Mara comes and says, normally Mara arises, appears to the Buddha, and the Buddha says, oh, I see you, Mara. Here you are again. And just by Saying, "I see you, Mara." Mara goes, "Oh, he he recognizes who I am," and sort of slinks away. That's the that's the way the story is told. But in this case, Mara comes and says, "May the Blessed One take final Nirvana." May the Blessed One um, now you've completed all your tasks. There's monks and nuns and a whole community and lay people and so forth. And Mara's been kind of urging the Buddha to, you know, hang it up for a long time. And the Buddha finally says. Um, all right, you need not worry, Mara. Um, It's not long. In several months, I will release this old 80-year-old body. Um, So Mara, it's very interesting. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, great teacher. I had a T-shirt from him that many of you have seen that says, no mud, no lotus, right? (laughs) And no Mara, no Buddha, You actually need Mara in the story or you don't get enlightened. It does, you need Mara to come and test you. And in some way which it says is that this is a dualistic world in which there is both um, love and connection and a timeless um, truth of freedom but there's also separateness and fear and confusion. And because there is, um, that becomes the seed or the ground from which then liberation can arise. Um, That's just the way it's built. Um, So, No Mud, No Lotus, or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who writes, where are you, Alex? Um, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary simply to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? And so Mara appears um, not because Mara shouldn't be there, but actually Mara is part of the dance of awakening itself. And the Buddha says, all right, Mara, now I see you again. And this time I'll go along with you because in several months it, it will be my time. And then as he says this, well, all right, so I, if I were to ask you, why did Mara come? I've sort of answered that question already. You need Mara. No one would go to the movie if you don't have a villain. You know how it works. I mean, this is our human condition, right? It, it's it's how it's designed. All right, so we, we see Mara, and Thich Nhat Hanh talks about Inviting Mara in for tea. Okay, I see you again, Mara. Come on, how's it going? How is it being the evil one? Well, Mara says, it's not actually that much fun. How are you doing, Buddha? You know. <laughs> so you start to have a different relationship with the difficulties. Um, instead of seeing them as something that you have to get rid of, you start to see them as part of the fabric of life and that there's a possibility of welcoming them. With tea and saying, "All right, but don't stay too long." you know There's a whole other reality that we can inhabit. So then there's a great earthquake that happens as soon as the Buddha says, "Yes, Mara, I will be dying in, you, know, or I'll take my final nirvana in these next months." a hair-raising earthquake and thunder. and, and Ananda, his beloved um, attendant, comes running, "What is this earthquake? And the Buddha says there are, because he was a list maker, there are eight causes for earthquakes. There's the, the natural earthquake, but also there's the earthquake when the when a Buddha is born and when the Buddha gets enlightened and so forth. And this earthquake was because Bara came and asked if I was uh, ready to leave this mortal life. And I said, yes, it's my time. And thus there was this enormous earthquake. Now, why an earthquake? Again, thinking mythologically or symbolically, because each of these events—the the enlightenment, the earthquake on the first teaching that came after, the 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 death of the Buddha—are all earth-shaking events. When you think about one or two billion people on the earth who've been affected by this one human being as a teacher over these two thousand six hundred years. You have a little earthquake happening there in the cosmos in some symbolic way that there's something profound that happens and this is the symbolic way of understanding it. And then Ananda gets really upset and begins to weep and say, oh, many times you've said you could live a long time, that you could live a, live a century. Please uh, don't die yet. Please live for a century. Um, and then the Buddha's response he says, um, "My body is now like an old cart held together with straps and ropes. You know what an old body is like. Some of you are getting there, right?" Um, he said, "And it's 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 finished. It's time. It's journey." And he said, "I I I must um, now, you know, take my nirvana in a few months." And Ananda said, but but you said you could live for a century. And the Buddha said, yes, but yours is th- the fault, Ananda. I gave you hints over these last years in the black snake pool in Jivaka's mango grove in the Rajgir deer park in the cool wood of Tapoda. And if you had asked me three times, please live for a century, I gave you hints that I could... Two times I would have demurred, no, but on the third time, this is fairy tale, right? By the third time I would have had to say yes and I would have lived for a hundred years. Yours is the fault, Ananda. Here's his beloved attendant for all these years. Talk about a guilt trip, right? <laughs> Yours is the failure. You've ignored these hints. Now why would he do this? Thinking again symbolically or mythologically. Give your little brain some time here. Here's one reason, one important reason that the teacher student relationship is not one way, that you too have a responsibility. It's not just held in one part of this dyad. And later, right before the Buddha dies, there's in this very same text he praises Ananda because Ananda was the most beloved of his disciples and for his care and beauty and his timing and sensitivity and guidance and all of these things he loves Ananda but in this story what he's doing is saying it's not just up to me Ananda it's up to our our relationship with one another and even as the buddha I need you as you need me to help awaken. That the teacher-student relationship is interweaves and we awaken together. And it puts a kind of responsibility back into the the arms and the hands or the hearts of those who are practicing. It's not just somebody saying something, but it's yours too. And you have the responsibility for the well-being of all. That you touch. So. In each scene. When various people come. Now they get different visitors come. To see the Buddha as he wanders. And ask their questions. Or get teachings. And he's wandering with a large company of followers. After he gives teachings. He says a phrase. That's repeated over and over again. That's related to what just happened. With Ananda. And that is that after he offers these beautiful teachings, he looks at the people who are there, um, you know, and they and sometimes it says their heart opened, their mind became vast, they attained to some new state of freedom or liberation beyond their small separate self, sense of self. Um, they became filled with compassion for the whole world. Those kind of nice things happen. And then he would look at them Or he'd say, all right, here, practice this. Do mindfulness of the breathing or do mindfulness of the body or do a compassion practice. At the end, he would say this phrase, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. Listen to that one, baby. You know, because there's something really important in that phrase. He's saying, all right, I can help you. I can point to who you really are to that possibility of liberation of heart that is your birthright. But no one can be liberated for you. No one can do it for you. Now I place it in your hands, in your heart, and it becomes yours to do with. And there's something enormously empowering in this. You understand this? Now it's in your good hands. Now it is in your heart. It, The teacher can't do it for you. That's why it's in this story. No one can let go for you. No one can awaken for you. No one can love for you. So then Ananda says, and the people around him, so who will be our guide? You know, who's going to run the company when the CEO retires, basically? And the Buddha replies... The Dharma, the teachings, will be your guide. I will not put another person in charge of the community. Let the truth and the teachings themselves be your guides. Be an island unto yourself. Take these teachings and responsibility. Do as you see fit. And then they said, how? To contemplate with mindfulness and loving awareness this very body and feelings and mind, the the ways that the mind and heart get entangled in the world, and to become aware of the possibility of releasing grasping and find freedom in itself, in, within your own experience. He said, so let the Dharma or the teachings, and the Vinaya, which is the word for the um, virtuous conduct of the monastics. Um, and he goes on to talk about virtue. And he says, those who do not live with attention to their words and deeds, um, who don't act out of kindness and respect, um, they lose their wealth, they lose their reputation, they lose their sleep, and they die confused. He doesn't mince words about it, you know. But on the other hand, if you pay attention to your life and live with dignity and care and respect for living beings for yourself and others, then there comes honor and respect, wealth, health, well-being, and ease of sleep, and a death that comes naturally in its appropriate time and easily for you. So he's talking about, this is the heart of um, practice, how we actually embody these teachings and how we live and then he goes on to say, ask the question, how you know, or some one of the monks asks, how will we know what are the right teachings? What are the true teachings of the Buddha? And he said, it might be that you heard them from the lips of the Buddha. It might be that the community of followers say these are the real teachings. It might be many from a circle of learned elders. It might be a master who repeats these. None of these will tell you for sure what are the teachings of the Buddha. You cannot rely on any of these. But instead, if what you hear conforms to the essence and the gist of these teachings, no matter what anybody says, that compassion... Loving kindness, joy, equanimity, the awakened heart. These grow in you through these practices and understandings. That wisdom shows you that attachment and grasping leads, and fear and confusion leads to suffering. And there's a a practice and a way to live that releases you from suffering. The noble truths of suffering and its causes, and that path to the end of suffering. And the wise attention that brings us to this freedom. If it conforms with the gist and the heart of these teachings and you know this in yourself, then you know you're following the right way. And it's a beautiful thing. Again, it places it in your own hands and hearts, your spiritual life. So he goes on and wanders with a large retinue. um, And he's getting sicker now. Um, So the travel is difficult but yet his heart is at peace, it says, even though his body is achy and he's getting older and sicker in this. And there he is in a beautiful forest grove and the courtesan, one of the most famous courtesans of the time, Ambapali, dressed in the finest silks and perfumes with a retinue of followers and carriages, arrives to the edge of the forest grove and then walks on foot and pays their respects to the Buddha, and it says the buddha instructed and roused and inspired and awakened them teaching the practices of mindfulness and loving awareness of compassion and inner freedom and of the fundamental dignity of life and of each human being and the courtesan and and her her group of people who came with him says i have shifted from being confused and closed to open and free in my heart and mind and describes this beautiful sense of awakening that the Buddha had touched in her. And she then says, will the Buddha and the company of followers come and take a meal at my, you know, at my home? And the Buddha agrees. Um, shortly thereafter in the story, the noble nobles, the princes of the Lichavis people, start to arrive with their carts, dressed in blue and yellow and white and silks and incredible cloth and adornment, royal carts and horses and elephants. And they also stop at the forest grove and they see Ambapali leaving. And they say, oh my God, this mango woman got here before us, which is a slang for whatever you want to imagine they were saying about her in the Me Too movement of the old days. <laughs> and um, they've come to invite the Buddha to their palaces, to give teachings. And the Buddha says, um, thank you for the invitation, but I've already accepted the invitation of the courtesan, of am Pali, I cannot come. And they said, oh no, oh no, and they raced after her And they offered her a hundred thousand pieces of gold, and she says, Not for my for a whole kingdom would I give up this invitation to make offerings to the Blessed One and have him come to my place? So here's another question for you, my friends. Why the courtesan? You know, and why does the Buddha accept her invitation and not that of the princess? What do you think? I mean, maybe you like courtesans, I don't know. But there's obviously a deeper and very important meaning. And the meaning is who can practice and who can awaken and what are the fundamental human values of these teachings. And from the very beginning, the Buddhist teachings are a huge contrast to the racist society that we live in now and that was also there in, in the caste system, India, at his time. When he was very, very clear that not by caste, not by race, not by birth is one higher or lower. The nobility of a human being is simply a matter of their heart. And the Buddhist texts begin, O nobly born, remember who you really are. Remember the possibility of freedom, of of liberation, of compassion you know, of the great heart, of awakened heart that is born and you remember who you are. You're not this small separate self. You are loving awareness itself. And this possibility is there for every single one of you. And so from the very beginning, um, the Buddha was adamant to not buy into the caste and race and all those kind of delusions that separate people from one another and cause so much enormous suffering. And so Ambapali is here to represent the fact that whoever comes, whoever comes with a good heart, um, that's the noble person. Um, and not by any of the other kind of standards. So then he's at uh, the Pava Ma- Mango Forest and Kunda the Smith offers his last meal Um, and he says um, you give it to me and give the other food to my followers. I'll take this special food um, that you have prepared for me. And even before he eats it, he reassures the, the Smith that there are some great treasures in this world and one of the great treasures, blessings, merit, power, benefit, is the person who gives the first meal to the buddha after he's enlightened and the person who gives the me last meal to the buddha at the end of his life now it happens that this meal that was given to him was <laughs> spoiled somehow unknown to the man who provided it and the buddha got terribly sick with dysentery after it and then dies as the story goes on and it's as if the buddha knew that Nobody else should eat this, it's my time, I'm, you know. Um, this is what you've offered and that's the way things unfold. But no matter what happens with this, um, you get great merit. You get, there's a, there's a, an enormous blessing that comes to give the first meal and the last meal to the Buddha. Now why would he say this? I mean, talk about, you know, how you, bad you might feel. I'm sorry I gave the food that poisoned the Buddha. You know, that wouldn't be really a very happy uh, circumstance to find yourself in, right? He's reassuring him because in the end, in the teachings, it is the motivation of the heart and the intention that matters. He's offering this with the purity and the best of intentions. And even though sometimes things don't work out the way you would like, the key to karma is is the motivation behind things. And it doesn't mean, you know, we might say, well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but actually that proverb means the road to hell is paved with um, ignorantly good intentions because we can have intentions that that aren't really um, clear and wise and so forth. But if you have a truly caring heart, and, and, and clarity and wise intention, that plants the seed for something good to happen, however long it takes for that seed to bear fruit. And so this is really talking about the, 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 the seed or the root of karma itself. Um, and let me see where we are in our time. We're getting there, okay. Um, I'll talk a tiny bit about karma. The image I use is if you pull your car out of the driveway in your house and then crash through the fence of the house next door into the living room, because you're so angry at your next door neighbor who cut down all those beautiful trees on the property line and mistreated your dog and did all these things, like the, the neighbor from hell, the worst neighbor, and you just got so furious and you crash your car into their house, then the blue lights will come along and take you away in handcuffs. But if you're in your car and you back out of the driveway and you crash through the fence into the living room of that next door neighbor because the accelerator st- pedal stuck, It's the same person, it's the same car, it's the same action of the crash. Instead of the blue lights, the ambulance comes followed by the insurance company or whatever. But what is the difference between those two? Not the person or the vehicle or the experience, but the intention behind it. And that's really the teaching in this, um, where he's reassuring this person who gives him the last meal. That it's the, it's the goodness of your heart that really plants the seeds. So then, he's there sitting in deep meditation and 500 carts come by, some huge train of merchants come by the river where he's sitting on the edge of a river. And then there's a huge thunderstorm and he says to Ananda, I want a cup of water. And Ananda says, but the river's all been... Um, stirred up by the carts in the rainstorm. And the Buddha says, please get me a cup of water from the river. And Ananda goes to the river and he says, magically the river is completely clear. And he brings him a beautiful cup of water and the Buddha uh, drinks from it. And a, a wandering yogi sees this, a wandering mendicant, who's coming to look for the Buddha and says, I've never seen anything like this. How did you do that? And... The images of alum, if you know what alum is, um, it's a substance that if you have a cloudy water and you put alum in it, um, it will help all the particulates settle to the bottom and then the water becomes clear. And in this case, what it points to is, what does it point to? Hmm. That there is a reality beyond the changing conditions of form of storms and lightning and cars and carts and so forth there is a timeless reality that is so clear and pure it can't be touched by the circumstance of the world and that's not just the physical because again this is symbolic and and metaphorical it's like nelson mandela walking out of robben island prison after you know 27 years with the Understanding that they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And this is the Buddha manifesting in this myth or this story, that there's an untouchable, unshakable reality of your own heart and mind. And then Pukusa, who's the wanderer um, there, who's come to see the Buddha, um, comes to make an offering and gives him a set of golden robes these beautiful golden colored robes, a little bit like our our monk who's sitting here in the second row who's come to visit. Um, And um, as the Buddha puts the robes on, his skin starts to glow and give off a golden light. Now what is that about? Sounds very mercantile, doesn't it? But it has some other meaning. The thing about gold, I have this lovely gold wedding ring that says inside, I love you, thank you on it, um, inscribed. The thing about gold or platinum sometimes you have, um, one of its great characteristics is that it doesn't tarnish. You know, that it can go through all the different changes, but that there's something in the chemical structure of the element of gold Um, unless there's some very special circumstances, aqua regia or things like that for you chemists. But other than that, um, it doesn't tarnish. It's partly why it was so treasured and valued. And in the same way, the, the glowing skin of the Buddha was a representation of a state of heart and mind, of compassion for the whole world and a liberated heart and mind that is untarnished by the changing conditions. It doesn't matter, again, if there's storms or, or, uh, or, or all kinds of other things. So now the Buddha continues. We're getting near the end of the story and I know it's almost your bedtime so that this is a bedtime story. Um, great pains, bloody severe sickness, it describes. Why would it get so graphic? because it's how it happens, baby. <laughs> it's just just what bodies do at the end, that they give up, and they fall apart in different ways, and it often can be painful. Um, coming in and going out, spirit coming into the body and leaving the body, the body doesn't want to die, and it has to kind of fall apart some before it does, and finally it, it gives up. Um, and this... this uh description says this is just part of being of human incarnation and it's important to see it for the way that it is and at this point the Buddha lays down in the lion's pose on his right side between two sal trees and um, the trees immediately go into bloom and then around the trees it says there are Angels and Brahmas and Devas from the 10,000 world systems all shining their eyes and their light down on the blessed one. Um, and uh, what, what is it about the trees blooming and uh, the, you know, radiance and, um, uh, that's there even while the body um, is severe bloody sickness and great pains? What does this say? That even in death, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, there is an an inviolable spirit that you're invited to remember, to know that this is who you are, and a purity. And then Ananda says, he complains, and he says, Don't die here. This is a miserable backwater, a daub and wattle village. I know some anthropologists translated this thing, right? You know, it's mud and sticks and so forth this is not a proper place for the blessed one to die. And the Buddha says, do not call this a miserable backwater. Now, why would this be here? You know, why is Ananda saying this is a miserable Waddle village? Don't die here. And I'll give you a hint as it goes on. You know, and he says, so you've got to go to Benares or Kosala or one of the great, you know, go to Paris and die there, you know, make it a good one, right? And the Buddha says, do not call it a miserable backwater. Once upon a time, long ago, in this very spot, lived an ancient monarch named King, king Sudasana, who was a wheel-turning monarch, which means a righteous king, um, And his kingdom was well populated, a kingdom of justice for all, prosperous, never free from the sounds of elephants and carriages, gongs and commerce, uh, cattle and symbols and joys. And the great roads from his palace stretched out in each of the four directions. And I will die here, thank you. Now, why is this in there? What could this mean? What the Buddha is speaking about, T.S. Eliot called the still point of the turning world. That absolutely any place, when the mind becomes silent and the heart becomes vast, any place is the kingdom of righteousness. Exactly where you are is the place of liberation, is the center of justice, at the center of well-being and the kingdom of righteousness. That it's not found in the physical world at all. But wherever you are when the heart is pure and the eyes are open to see this world with compassion and freedom, this is the place of awakening. And then there's one last visitor and Ananda says, no, no, you know, you've, you're have you getting ready to die. And the Buddha says, no, let, let him come in. Let him come in. And it's really the Buddha's last act of compassion. He says when he says, let him come in, these teachings are open-handed. they are teachers who, who, who hide away and put the teachings and secrets. He says, I've given you everything you need. I've reminded you of everything you need to know to awaken your own heart and mind without holding back anything. Let him come in. Let whoever they are, let me give this away. And it's a very, very beautiful um, moment. And then he looks around and he says, "Does anybody have any doubts? Have I not taught you well? Is there some question you have and I've shown the way um, for liberation to to not cling to this world to to step out of the small sense of self and fear and confusion and rest in the liberated heart. I've pointed the way to what he called the sure heart's release." No one had questions. He said, then be of good resolve, all of you nobly born. And he says something very beautiful then. He says, for if you practice wisely, the earth will never be free of enlightened beings, of awakened beings. Remember, he goes on, all created things are impermanent. They all change. Be a lamp light unto yourself, find your freedom. And he closed his eyes and went into deep meditation and died. And this is a poem from Mary Oliver, the Buddha's Last Instruction. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet. An old man he lay down between two sal trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. No doubt, he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. "Make of yourself a lamp," he said. Make of yourself a light. And he spoke to that illumination that is there in you and in each of us. And when he died, some of the monks and followers cried and tore their hair out. Oh, the blessed one is gone. And some of the more awakened ones said, hey, didn't he just teach you that everything's impermanent? Why are you holding on? And they grumbled, the awakened ones, the the enlightened ones grumbled about the people who who were grieving. You know, I love this part, actually. Why is the grief there and why are they complaining? You know, he just said it. It really makes it human, doesn't it? Because it helps you to hold the opposite. Okay? In one way, There is a timeless reality. So when the great sage Ramana Maharshi was dying of cancer and his students came to him and they said, please don't leave us, please don't leave us. He was very sick. And he looked back and he said, but where could I go? Where could I go? For who I am and who you are here is timeless. This is just my body. That's not who I am. That's not who you are. Where could I go? So that's one side of the paradox. But the other, this great Tibetan sage, Marpa, you know, the teacher of Milarepa, one of the greatest of the Tibetan teachers, um, his uh, son died. And Marpa started to grieve and weep. And students came and said, but you're supposed to be awakened and enlightened. All things come and go. And isn't birth and death just an illusion? And Marpa looked back, weeping, and said, yes, and the death of a child is the greatest illusion of all, and wept. So these are the things that we have to hold together, the sorrows of the world, which we know right now are so visible, and the timeless truths that we can plant the seeds of liberation and care and respect for one another in both wise society and in our own personal life. And this is what's possible for us. And a great funeral was held. They had asked the Buddha, how, what should we do? And they made a big stupa and treated his remains like that of a king, 500 layers of linen and cotton and perfume. But they couldn't light the fire because Venerable Mahakasapa, this great disciple of the Buddha is still walking there with 500 monks and nuns. And all these numbers, 500 just meant lots of them, right? And so they kept trying to light the fire and it wouldn't light. And then Mahaprastha came and paid his bow, laid his head at the feet of the Buddha. And then the fire spontaneously lit, and there was, of course, another earthquake. And, you know, flowers rained down from the heavens to celebrate and honor the world awakened one. And the most important thing, he said, is for you who might long for justice or beauty or compassion or to live a life of integrity and virtue if you practice these not just you hear them but if those who have heard these practice rightly the earth will not be free of those who are awakened this is the dharma that is good in the beginning good in the middle and good in the end so let's just sit for a minute So this is a story of empowerment. It's a story of the passing on of one of the great treasures of humankind. And the point, having used a Buddhist text tonight, is not for you to become Buddhists. Spare your friends and family. It's to become Buddhas. That's a much more interesting uh, occupation Um, to actually embody and take to heart within yourself and within the community and within a society that is so hungry for integrity, that's so hungry for compassion, for the vulnerable, that's so hungry for um, a spirit that's untouched by all the praise and blame and gain and loss that still carries itself with dignity and kind of displays the possibility of freedom. So now you have these teachings as reminders Um, Now it is time for you to do as you see fit. Thank you.